Good day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to today's Crow session for Trade School, Brexit and Your Next Steps. We're very happy that you're joining us for this session, and we've got a lot of information packed into today's program. So at this time, though, it is my pleasure to hand the session over to Pete Minto, Managing Director with Crow. And Pete, the show is yours. Thank you, Matthew. And as always, thank you for all the hard work that you put into making us all look good and sound good, um, although I'm not sure it's possible to make me look good on these things. But you, you certainly do help me to put on one heck of a great uh, performance every week, and I, I really do appreciate that. It is, uh, let's see, 10.02 Central Standard Time here in beautiful New Orleans, Louisiana, where I am, uh, I am currently taking a break from the Mardi Gras festivities to completely nerd out with all of you on what has become an incredibly important topic that's being talked about a lot, but no one seems to be taking much action, and that's Brexit. Uh, in typical Pete Mento fashion, I reached out to three of my partners, and um, without even telling them I already put it all put it all out there to do it, I told them that they were going to do a WebEx with me um, without even asking them, which probably wasn't the nicest thing for me to do. But uh, very fortunate today that we have the leaders from our supply chain practice, our value-added tax practice in Europe, as well as our uh, our transfer pricing practice. So this is a truly international trade school today. Uh, Rendell is in Amsterdam. Wolfgang is in um, in Germany. You know what? I'll have to ask him precisely which office because I don't remember. Um, and then Will Niblo, who has been with me on the um, podcast before in the past, uh, he's joining us today from the middle of nowhere in Michigan, where I'm sure he lives in a uh, – if you saw his picture before we started, he m absolutely must live in some kind of a, a log cabin where I'm sure he hunts and traps and raises all of his own food, sort of like Little House on the Prairie out there. But I digress. I have had it up to here, like up, up to, to the point where I can't even stand it anymore with all the talking about Brexit. I'm, I'm a firm believer there's two types of men in the world, ones that talk about punching somebody and one who just walks up to someone and punches them in the mouth. You, you either take action or you don't. And there's just been a... Uh, an unbelievable amount of hand-wringing and kvetching and, 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 and talking about Brexit and advising people about Brexit. But what no one has bothered to do is to talk about the steps you ought to be taking to deal with Brexit. I counted, because I have absolutely nothing better to do with my time. I counted online yesterday the number of webinars and seminars that are currently available to get some awareness about Brexit. And I stopped at 41. And they were all the same thing over and over again. What is Brexit? Why is it happening? And what's going on so far? This does you absolutely no good. You need information that allows you to take action. And I'm a, I'm a massive believer that there simply hasn't been enough people getting up off their duffs, taking a look at how this is going to affect their business and doing something about it. Now, to be fair, for a lot of us, we didn't have enough information yet. We didn't know what was going to happen. So for a lot of companies, they were sitting back and they were waiting to see what would happen next before they went, went forward. But we're at a point now with regards to Brexit where we know when things are going to happen. We know when the next touch points are going to be. And in my world, there are really four areas that people should be concerned with having a plan of attack for. The first is going to be how it's going to greatly affect your supply chain. The second is how it could affect that, your value-added tax situation. 
The third is how it could affect companies with transfer pricing where you're doing related party transactions. And of course, tariffs uh, and what can happen there. We can speculate pretty deeply on what will happen with tariffs, but no one knows for certain. But no matter what the for certain is going to be, you need to have an idea of the plans you should take depending on which way the wave breaks. And that's what I wanted to do today. So um, as much as I like thanking Matthew at the beginning of this, I, I wanted very much to thank our partners who came on today. It's not easy to coordinate over three different countries um, and across a ton of time zones. I think it's almost 4 o'clock in, um, in Amsterdam and in Germany right now, the Netherlands and in Germany. I'm not sure. I know that they have a bar in the office where Randall works, so he's probably annoyed he isn't drinking right now. Uh, but the fact that all of you would join us today, everyone on Trade School really does appreciate the fact that you made time for us today. So I'm going to kick this off with um, some basis for the conversation today. The first thing that all of you have to understand is that Brexit isn't done. That's a, a myth that's rolling out there that, the, that everything has been severed and um, that the UK is its own separate little customs entity. Now, it's not, that's not what's happening. They've actually been given a year through the 31st of December to try to put together the plan with the EU so that they have a soft landing. That's the whole point of that time was, to give everyone an opportunity, give everyone a chance to make this as smooth a transition as possible. If that happens or not is really what's the last thing up for debate. If they can't come up with a new agreement in time, then it just means that there's going to be tariffs on things exported back and forth. And nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. This is um, a situation where every party involved would be much happier if we had a legitimate plan moving forward because of the disruption it would mean to their economy, if not the global economy. So everyone is hoping for some degree of, of maturity and foresight in moving this forward so that we have a real plan by the time the 31st of December comes around. So question number one, right? Do I really need to take action now if we don't know what it's going to look like? Yes, you absolutely do. Because even if the European Union remains as a customs union, there are still going to be issues of taxation and supply chain that you're going to have to manage. Uh, so this is, this is paramount, in my opinion, that you take this seriously and don't use hope as a strategy. So how, how big of a market are we talking about? How large of an issue are we talking about? Well, that first number is pretty impressive, right? 45% of everything that leaves that little island in Great Britain, in the UK, went to the EU last year. 45%. Now, to put that in perspective, the United States doesn't have a single trading partner that rises to that level. Um, the only one that comes even close would be Canada, and that one um, usually hovers around the 20% mark. So this is a pretty big deal. And imagine if all of a sudden we were in a situation where we had duty-free, uh, a duty-free environment for years, and we'd all kind of gotten comfortable handling it that way, you know? Um, Everything was done the same way. There weren't any real issues. And then, bam, all of a sudden, uh, you have to change the way that you do business with everyone out of nowhere. So um, the other thing that, that kind of gets me frustrated here is that there should be increased trade costs in the wake of, uh, of this, but no one's bothered to do the math to try to understand what it could mean. Uh, I think a big reason for that was this fear of whether or not the European Union and the UK will have a, a customs union. I have a very hard time believing that they won't. So um, I'd like to say to people, have you taken a whiteboard study yet? Have you gone to a whiteboard, uh, you know, like a, a dry erase board, and corned it off into four quadrants? 
so that your, your, your whiteboard is basically four smaller rectangles now. Then have you written down the issues that could affect your supply chain on the top left corner? In the top right corner, the issues that would affect that. Bottom left-hand corner, duties. Then the bottom right-hand corner, supply chain. Um, all together from start to finish with regards to your um, transfer pricing. If you haven't done that yet to see how this could affect your company, I think that you're not doing justice to your shareholders. I don't think you're doing justice to your customers. And you're certainly not doing justice to your audit committee and yourself. There's, there should be some degree of insight that's been obtained to see how this could affect you because hope simply isn't a strategy in this case. You're going to end up in a lot more trouble by not managing it from some degree of strategy. All right, so I hate being the guy that stands up in front of everybody and um, says the sky is falling, the sky is falling, but, but here, here's the number to consider. If there is no direct relationship that creates a customs union, you're talking about 350 million new customs entries a year that will be generated from this. So if we had to go to normal consumption entries between the European Union and Great Britain, this is how many we would probably see come from that. There are a preposterous number of American companies and Canadian companies in particular that distribute all of their European sales through the United Kingdom. And this would drastically change the way that that would work. A lot of companies also in America and Canada in particular have their European headquarters. Some have their global headquarters located in Great Britain. What will that mean as well? And don't even get me started on the banks. Have you classified all of your product in that part of the world? So, so dig this. Imagine you've got a thousand SKUs that you've been moving across these, these borders forever, but you've never classified them because you haven't had to. And now all of a sudden there's an expectation that your entire SKU load is going to need to be classified. Have you, have you taken the time to look at what runs you have going across the European Union and identify the ones that would need to be classified because you've never had to do it before? To put something uh, in deeper perspective about classification, it's a good rule of thumb that uh, a very diligent expert classifier can knock off between four to five classifications an hour. And that's someone who's actually doing the job. And for those of you who say, well, I have an American HTS or a Canadian HTS, is that good enough? It'll be good enough to the first six digits, but I don't think it's going to live up to the requirement for all 10. There's still going to be some work there. Could I use an automated system to do it? Probably not. I've yet to see, there's a lot of people who say they have one, but I've yet to see a single automated software tool or search engine or think engine that legitimately brings one-to-one um, -one harmonized tariff codes, you know, homogenous um, supremacy on the tariff code from one to one. I haven't seen it yet, so I don't know if I would trust any of them. How about your trade compliance program? For a lot of you, you've lumped these two countries together under the same customs rules. You're going to have to have a legitimate compliance program for, for the UK and then a separate one for Europe. You're going to have to audit them differently and you're going to have to manage them differently. Your bonds are going to change. So for a lot of you, you haven't had to deal with significant bonds in the European Union before. Have you talked to your sureties? Have you discussed it with your customs house brokers to understand how this is going to affect it? It should be top of mind. And then speaking of brokers, do you have one? Do you have a customs house broker if this ends up going in the ditch that can actually manage your entries back and forth across those borders? Or are you just assuming the people that you're working with now can do it? And the people you're working with now, if that were to happen, are they any good at it? Do you have the right kind of leadership and the right kind of guidance? 
And lastly, if you're doing most of your distribution from the United Kingdom, you probably need to rethink that entire, entire thing from start to finish. And I'll have more to say about this when it comes up to my part at the end, but, um, you know, that's a lot to, to swallow, folks. That's a lot to take down with your morning coffee or for those of you in Europe with your, with your evening pint of beer. But the major effect that, that people probably, you know, seems obvious is the supply chain particularly for folks distributing. And uh, I guess it's a pretty good segue to bring in the man um, who has the greatest beard probably in all of Crow. I don't know if we – do we have a do we have a trophy for that, Will? No, no awards have been given out. No, not that I'm aware of. All right. I'm going to come up with one because I think you should have it until someone comes for your crown. Um, <laughs> Will, Will Niblo is, is the first person that I really um, connected with here at Crow. Um, I consider him a friend. He doesn't have many of them, so I'm sure he feels fortunate for that. Um, but if you saw his picture as we were starting, the man has a preposterous beard. It's beautiful, luxurious. Some, would, some might go so far as to even say handsome. I wouldn't, of course. He also works out constantly, so he's this, like, swole version of the, the – if you ever saw the year without a Santa Claus, he looks like that. Or I always say he looks like a teapot version of Bryce Harper, a – Probably not something I consider a compliment in reality. Uh, but aside from taking all of my ribbing, uh, Will and I work very closely together. We're one of the few consulting firms that I really believe where, where global customs and global supply chains do work with one another. We do refer business to one another, and we're always keeping each other in mind. We're coming up with solutions, and I, I love working with them. And I'm so happy you could join us today, Will. Hey, thank you. I really appreciate it. Yeah. The intro is ridiculous. Yeah, I know, I know. Wait till I get to Rendell's first haircut, <laughs> my God. So um, with that being said, uh, you put together some very, very powerful slides today, and I wanted to give you a chance to sort of introduce the topic on supply chain. Great, thank you. So, you know, it, it's really cut and dry. I think people uh, can kind of over-engineer these things. Uh, no parts, no production. It's really simple. Uh, in supply chain, it's about having the parts available. I had an old boss once when I was a materials manager. He asked me, he goes, Will, he goes, we always have parts, which amazes me given what you have to do to make sure they show up. But uh, why is it so expensive sometimes? I said, Casey, that's very, very simple. Uh, if the parts show up and they're expensive, you yell at me. If they don't show up at all, you fire me. So I guarantee you will always have parts. So when it comes to uh, Brexit, this is the exact opposite of becoming more efficient. So when it comes to global supply chains, we're more efficient than ever. Goods move very fluidly, uh, and we're working to minimize the amount of effort for that to occur. This is a step backwards. And so what that means in terms of supply chains is really simple. Uh, more time, more cost, and more uncertainty. In whatever form it comes your way, that's going to be the impact. Uh, and the difference here. I mean, every year there's some type of a global supply chain disruption that uh, managers of supply chains have to deal with. Uh, many of those happen overnight, and we're just we have to react. Uh, a, you know, coronavirus, for example. This one, we got a three-year runway. So if we go to the next slide here, we got three years. And so I can't imagine a lot of events in business where I've had three years to prepare. That leads to disruption in my operations or stores or what have you, where my leadership wouldn't look at me and go, 
what the heck have we been doing for the last three years to prepare for this? So we, we anticipate fully that when people start to be impacted by these things, it's really going to be a very no excuses type of environment for uh, supply chain managers, unfortunately. And again, we, you know, we don't like to be chicken little about this stuff. It's just, it's just the reality, right? So, so where to look, like what to focus on is, uh, is most important, and then taking decisive action or having good plans is what matters most. So made a simple list, right? So first and foremost, suppliers based in the UK. Uh, start there, right? Because uh, you can anticipate longer lead times, you can anticipate increased costs, you can anticipate shortages. So what are some strategies to mitigate that? Uh, tier two, tier three. You know, everyone's going to be impacted by this, and so I think a lot of folks kind of look at it on the surface and go, well, you know, I don't have direct supply relationships in the UK, yeah, but what about your suppliers' suppliers? Uh, it, it happens to everybody where the Tier 2, Tier 3 suppliers that they're completely unaware of come up and bite them. And so are you doing surveys? Do you understand where those uh, issues might occur? Are you looking at that? Because if you're not, uh, you know, it'll bite you later. Uh, customers, you know, supply chain managers get so focused on suppliers and, and logistics and these other things, you know, holistically, you have customers in the UK and, you know, some studies that I've read suggest, you know, 40% of people working with suppliers in the UK are looking to change sources, move it to other countries, move it to other regions. We have clients that we're working with right now who are asking us to help them identify suppliers that are capable in other regions outside of the UK. So, you know, are you anticipating the potential of lost revenue? Are you going to those suppliers with plans, talking to them about, you know, what your company is doing to mitigate this so that you don't experience lost revenue? And I know that's a little bit of a creative twist here on how supply chain managers normally think, but in the spirit of bringing uh, value to the overall organization, it's something you just you have to think about. Anything flowing through the UK and the ports, you can anticipate more time, more potential cost. And if you have, you know, brick and mortar operations there, you know, how are you thinking about that? We're working with one supplier right now. Uh, they have multiple distribution points, uh, one client throughout uh, uh, Europe. Uh, and the work that we're doing with them is actually evaluating a operation that they manage in the UK, and they want to move that carte blanche to a, a third-party logistics manager outside of the UK, preferably in Germany. And, and the reason they're doing it is not because uh, of an inevitability. They just they don't want to have to deal with the uncertainty when everybody else wakes up and starts to deal with it. They're taking action early. So what does action look like? So you look in those so areas. Hold on, hold on, right? hold on, hold on. Go ahead, I'm sorry. You can't, you can't. You can't Please just bulldoze over me when I've got a point to make. Yep. All right. So um, <laughs> one, one of the things I, I absolutely um, am tired of having to deal with over and over again is usually the first time a lot of our, our clients ever look at the totality of their compliance program is when they've been told that they have an audit or when something really awful has happened and now all of a sudden compliance is a focus. I think, you know, you have talked about this a couple of times um, with regards to supply chains. Most supply chains that people have are the result of just dealing with things over time. It, there's not a whole lot of like what you call intelligent design. Uh, 
that's gone into looking at this. And um, you know, there's two things that I would I would say to people is first of all, when's the last time that you really looked at your your whole supply chain and and tried to apply some degree of logic to it? You know, try to try to understand that this is a bigger, broader, deeper issue than just managing what's been cobbled together over the past 5, 10, 20, 50 years to deal with client uh, outcomes. So I think this is an excellent opportunity for a lot of people who are listening, or just anybody, to for once take a look at their supply chain with fresh eyes and say, this is how we've always done it. Is there a smarter way? And is Brexit a great excuse for us to undertake that kind of analysis? Mm-hmm. So now, I don't know your opinions on that. I mean, you, you probably don't. Do, do you see when you visit people that they've mostly put a lot of thought into putting it together? Or is it like I described, sort of a cobbled together approach because it is what it is? Uh, my client base is primarily manufacturers, and they run lean, right? So people are working to execute the play. There are very few resources that have the time to work on the business. So when it comes to supply chain, right? Uh, it's like the search for aliens. You know, where Are there signs of intelligence here? And it's, it's, it's usually the case that it is not of intelligent design. And if we had the time and our druthers, we would set this up differently. At working with one guy right now, large company, uh, as a result of you know, the economic crisis years ago, they rationalized the plant footprint uh, in the Midwest. Uh, they have substantial operations in the Northeast. And when we kind of looked at it for them, on a freight basis, they are sending a lot of their parts for like metal coating still back to the Northeast, as an example, and uh, absorbing you know a large amount of transportation cost as a result. And it's just legacy supply chain that they haven't had time to catch up on and qualify new suppliers to tighten things up. So these types of things are ever present. And your customer base changes, right? So if you think about outbound logistics and how you distribute today and where people are, those things are ever evolving. So even if it was of intelligent design, you know, 20 years ago, I guarantee things have changed and, and you probably need to take a look at it. Yeah. Well, um, you know, that brings me, there was a question that was asked and I do want to address it here, the backstop for Ireland. Um, and again, we're not going to do a whole bunch of talking about what Brexit is. There's about a million other things you can, but for a lot of folks, they've been managing their sales across um the UK and Ireland as a, as a combined situation. And one of the biggest problems with Brexit was dealing with the fact that Northern Ireland and Ireland are two separate companies, countries, pardon me, one of which will remain and one of which will not. And the fear was that, you know, folks would just send everything to Ireland and distribute it through there. And before you know it, it's not, you're paying tariffs on it anyway. That's a pretty crazy way to run a supply chain, but I can see where that might be a benefit. Uh, that That's a, Likely what will happen down the road is, is that they'll, the backstop, which they've agreed upon, will allow products to move through it. There'll be an electronic way of managing what's going across it, and there shouldn't be any real, any real uh, disturbance to the supply chain. That was the most important thing to manage. So I think you're going to find people bending over backwards to make sure that that doesn't become sort of the spear in the heart of this whole thing. But it goes back to what you just said, how much thought, how much intelligence went into it to begin with, why are you distributing you know, into the UK out of Ireland or, or vice versa. Is there a better way to do it that you can manage more easily and have a better economic impact? Right, sorry, I didn't mean to cut yep. you off like that, but yeah, so next slide. No, we're good, two-way. I mean, it, the worst thing you can have in your supply chain is uncertainty. This slow train has been moving for three years. 
So get get ahead of it, because uh, even even at the expense of a little bit more cost, uh, could be worth it. So so I'll just summarize real quick. Uh, you know, so what are the types of things that our clients are doing or that would come out of an assessment? Uh, strategic sourcing, uh, considering different dance partners and areas that are more uh, freight logical in the future. Uh, realignment of logistics routes. A buildup of inventory, just something as pragmatic as that on the near term, just anticipating longer lead times through ports, uh, you know, and, and actually maybe even having to beef up internally on the administrative piece, uh, recognizing the fact that it's going to be uh, more paperwork involved. So, so lots of things. It's very pragmatic stuff. Uh, but if you start uh, with the whiteboarding uh, exercise that uh, Pete had recommended and you and you put your thoughts into those buckets on the prior slide as it relates to supply chain, it'll give you a, a big head start in terms of being able to communicate to your organization what next steps you should take in terms of building out your plans. Well, are, are you, are you going to like put a pin in it right there? You've got a lot of information on the slide, minutes. Um, well, I don't want to take up the whole the whole time so there's folks that want to hear about other things but that's, that's it that's the mary lou retton 1980s dismount right there well you're about the same height so that's uh oh, <laughs> my beard is better than hers yeah that's true but when i when i when i listen to you and we talk about all this stuff the the, the fact is that people supply chains when you when you take any part of it and you bend it to change it a little bit it can have pretty long lasting effects it could have effects on the way that you price everything. Um, it could have effects on the way that you, know, you manage inventory. And I can't stress enough what Will is saying here. Look at who you're dealing with across these statistical uh, landscapes. And if the UK is involved, if it's vendors or customers, what's the volume? What does that currently constitute from a financial standpoint? Are you in a situation where you can make changes? Um, and do you have a backup? I mean, you and I worked a lot during the Chinese, um, you know, the, the terror that was the last two years for me with regards to 301s. And, you know, we had to get a lot of advice on trying to find some other place to manufacture. And that was not easy for a lot of folks. They hadn't even considered it before. So I don't know if you want to address the fact that, you know, that's that's been high on our list of things we've been managing for the past year. No, absolutely, right? So when it comes to, you know, supply continuity, which is the name of the game here, it, it doesn't always involve just carte blanche, uh, moving all of your supply, just identifying secondary sources, secondary routes, uh, strategies for beefing up inventory, all of these things that you manage, you know, continuity. But, but it's, not, uh, uh, it's not so simple to do. Uh, and when you're dealing in other regions uh, in, the, in the UK and in Europe, uh, there's also a lot of other folks that are trying to do these things, kind of early adopters. And so, you know, for example, when it comes to logistics as a strategy in 3PLs, uh, you know, trying to uh, abide for a secondary supplier near a premium port, I mean, you're not going to be the first person making those phone calls. And so yeah. it, it's not a new insight. And if you're an early adopter, you got a better chance of creating an optimal situation. We found a lot of folks during the, the tariff, uh, you know, kind of unable to come up with uh, the right secondary suppliers and supply chain answers in a period of time uh, that was appropriate. And they, they were also, you know, kind of uh, a little bit asleep at the wheel in terms of uh, 
how they married those strategies of increased cost up to what they were able to pass along to customers. Because some of the increased costs were a bit of an inevitability, and the, the business itself just didn't have good conversations between supply chain and uh, sales and marketing. And so a lot of it, they just took it on the chin with margin, which is, you know, uh, the wrong answer. You know, there's one more thing I'll say uh, before we move on off supply chain. The other three things that we're talking about here, um, you know, with regards to duties, that and transfer pricing, there's a difference between that and supply chain. A lot of American companies are making the ridiculous decision to say, you know what, my freight forwarders and my transportation providers, they'll manage this for me. They'll, they'll, they'll come up with a solution. That's what I pay them for. And I think that is one of the more foolish directions that you could take in trying to deal with this. You're going to have to take charge of this. You know, you, what's going on with, with duty and VAT and transfer pricing, those are taxing agencies. They'll, they'll do what they have to do on your side. You're still just as responsible. But people are making the bad decision that someone else is going to manage this for them. What it happens, and that's, that's just a, a recipe for, dis, for disaster. No okay, one will um, ever no. own it better than yourself. Thanks, Pete. And no one knows your business. No one knows your business better than you do. Um, yeah. So, everyone, you'll, you'll get the contact information for all these folks, of course, at the end. Um, and who wouldn't want to talk to Big Willie Niblo? Who wouldn't want to spend a little extra time chatting with him? I know I don't want to anymore. So, he's going to have to find someone else to manage all those conversations with him. And I hope you do reach out. But um, it really is about reviewing the design and trying to understand what you're going to have to do what you can take advantage of, what you can do yourself to be prepared for this change when it happens. Okay, um, with that, I'm very excited to uh, to introduce the, the Flying Dutchman. Um, you know, Rendell, if it ain't Dutch, it ain't much Hoffman. One of the, the few people that will actually go out and drink beer with me uh, at the end of any meeting that we have. Um, tremendously talented person with regards to value-added tax. He actually manages that, that entire practice area for us. So it doesn't matter where it is in the globe, he gets pulled into it. So for those of you who are wondering why I don't have an Englishman talking about this, um, Rendell's in a much better position to discuss this from a holistic view. And uh, I, I really do appreciate you coming on today. And um, can't wait to hear what you have to say to the listeners today. Thank you. Thank you, Pete. Um, I probably you know that it's uh, 5 p.m. here, um, so 5.30 now already. Um, so my full team is probably in the bar upstairs drinking beer. Um, I'm sitting behind my desk doing this, uh, this webinar, uh, which I'm pleased to do. Um, what I would like to do with you is first go into VET a little bit deeper um, than you may already know. Um, because we have this European Union right now, which has 28 countries, um, 27 after Brexit, and they all work together uh, under this VET directive. Um, it's an obligation to implement that VET directive in your local uh, legislation, um, but of course every country has its own touch in this VET legislation. Um, to give an example, the, the VET rates in Europe differ from 5% to 27%. So you don't want to make a mistake on the 27% um, 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 tariff. Um, it's a consumption tax, so in the end, the, the tax should be uh, borne by uh, the consumer, so the private individual. Um, but because of the way the VET is implemented, it levies VET, so at the rate of 27% in some states, stage, 
in every stage of the supply chain. So that means that if you're the um, um, the end customer, you get 27% VT on the full turnover on the full purchase price. Uh, but it may start somewhere in a in a small factory uh, for one part of the product also being taxed at 27%. The good thing, of course, is that you can reclaim the VT on your cost if you, in the end, um, send an invoice with VT again. So if you're in the middle of the supply chain, in most cases, the VT is a wash. Uh, it depends, of course, on timing, how much you spend on VT, but in the end, it should be a wash. Um, you have to do periodical VT returns in, in Europe, mostly monthly, quarterly, or yearly. Depends a little bit on the volume of your uh, turnover. Um, you have to be registered in most of the countries if you do business there. And um, in Europe, you also have to file intra-community filings. That means that if you send goods and supply services across the border in Europe, because we still have borders, then you have to file these kind of returns. So compliance, the, the level of compliance in Europe is quite high. Um, having 28 countries, which is a little, little difference in the rules, also means that you have to do uh, 28 times the VG returns, uh, 28 times the, the inter-community returns. And if you are really lucky, um, you have to do an intrastat return. An intrastat return is a return that you have to file uh, locally again if your turnover is more than 1.2 million. So that's, that's a little bit of background on, on VET and how the environment uh, looks. Um, if you import into Europe, it doesn't matter into which country, but if you um, pass the, um, the border in Europe somewhere, uh, you also have to pay VET again because then the goods are in the, um, the European community. Um, mostly we follow the INCO terms. That means that if the good is imported by someone in the EU, that someone has to pay the VT uh, at the border. If you are registered, if you have a company in, the, in, in Europe, let's say the Netherlands or a permanent establishment, you can most probably shift the VT to your VT return, so your periodical VT return. That, that means that you don't have to pay the VT at the border, um, but you can pay it in your VT return. If you supply VT taxable activities again, you can reclaim it in the same VT return, and it's a wash. Um, but for all these types of registrations, or for all these types of filings, you have to be registered. Of course, the compliance costs in Europe are quite high if you do business in, uh, in, in a lot of these countries. Um, we have also some rules for uh, for services, but let's focus more on the um, on the goods. Um, the good thing in Europe is, and that's that's the reason why we have this directive, and that's also the reason why Brexit will be such um, a difference, um, is that we have a neutral system if you trade between the EU countries. In general, that means if you send goods from one country to another country um, and there are two entrepreneurs involved, then there is no VT. It's zero rated or someone, uh, somebody can call it exempted with reclaim, but it's zero rated to trade across borders. That means that there is no actual VT um, to be financed if you trade between two entrepreneurs that are in different countries. That's, that's the best thing that we have uh, within the VT directive. Um, that being said, if you look at Brexit, 
um, uh, Will also said it already, a lot of the, um, the non-European companies have uh, started their supply chain in, in the UK. Um, that means that if you start in the UK and you also trade on the mainland of Europe, you have to get your goods from the UK to the mainland. Question after Brexit is, will there be a VT system? So will it be aligned with Europe? Because it's a European directive, um, and if the UK is not part of the EU anymore, they cannot make use of the directive. They also cannot make use of the, um, let's say, the, the case law that's already been there for, for 30 or 40 years. So nobody knows what will happen with PET legislation in uh, the UK after Brexit. There is no neutrality anymore. <clears throat> so that means that if you trade between the UK and Europe, what I just said on the 0% rate or exempt rate between two countries, uh, that's not applicable anymore to the UK. Um, if you trade from the UK to a country on the mainland, it means that you will have to pay VT at the border, at the one of the other uh, European borders. Um, that also means that you have to finance the VT every time you send goods from the UK to the EU or the other way around. Um, so if you look at the, the environment after Brexit, there is in general no neutrality anymore. We do not know which VET rate the, um, the UK will have. We are not even sure on what the VET legislation will be, if case law is still applicable. Um, so starting your supply chain in the UK and then moving goods to Europe is probably a bad idea. Um, the solution would be, and I think that's the same what, what Will also said, have a good look at your supply chain. Where are your customers? Um, where is your logistics parties? Um, or should you choose other logistic parties, other 3PLs? Because starting in the UK and then going to the mainland uh, will be very difficult. You may need to have separate supply chains, one for UK goods, not leaving the UK anymore, um, and one for the mainland, starting somewhere in, let's say, the Netherlands or France or Germany, uh, and then going to other parts of, of Europe. Because, of course, if you land your goods in the Netherlands, uh, then you still have the fat neutrality uh, to any other country in Europe. Um, but don't start your supply chain in the UK and then move your goods to, uh, to the mainland. Um, if you look at the... Um, the, the, the things we did already in, in Europe, in the EU, on the mainland for, uh, for Brexit, um, is that a lot of governments, a lot of authorities are already trying to ease the way that you register. If you are registered in, in the UK, if you're an entity in the UK, and you want to vest an entity in, let's say, the Netherlands again, it's made a little bit easier to get that entity started up, because everybody knows that it will be very difficult if you just start two or three months before the end of this year um, to get an entity here or to get a 3PL um, in the air or get a license to trade, um, it will probably not happen anymore. So you have to be, you have to be ready uh, at least two or three months before the 31st of December. Um, and if you come back, you probably have to start now already because waiting times to get a VT number, 
uh, waiting times to get your licenses up in, in one of the countries on the mainland is up to uh, three, four months. Um, so you have to take a look at your supply chain. You have to be sure that the goods that are have a distinction on the mainland uh, do not land in the UK. So when you talk about that neutrality, that's the one that really gets my gets my attention. Um, how difficult yeah. is it for a company to understand what the financial impact could be? Um, you know what, what they're going to have to pay across those and, and to manage it. Is that a tremendous amount of work to put that together? Oh yeah, it's a, a good question. Um, there was a research by the European Union uh, two or three years ago, I guess, um, because in the end we lose 165 billion of VET because of non-compliance. Um, so every every country is thinking of measures to get the VET in, uh, and they said that if you go to a new country in the EU, so if you, you're trading in the Netherlands and then go to Germany, it will probably cost you 8,000 euros on compliance costs. So everything you need to just have your business in that country. Um, so compliance costs are quite high in the EU, um, and this will be an extra barrier if you have to import from the UK into the EU. So compliance costs will even be higher. Yeah, I think people need to, Understand those costs, do the research, and then talk about that. Discuss it. It will it will have an, an impact and an effect on on the cost of goods sold. And I don't know if people are actually sitting down and considering that. That's not one of the things, or transfer pricing, that seems to ever come up in these conversations, but could absolutely have a negative effect. So, no, Randall, of course, thank you so much. Yeah, thank, thank you so much for uh, for this. I know I got to move on. Um, the fiscal representative schema is something I'll probably bring up at the end, but um, I really do appreciate you taking the time. And, and as uh, as I just pointed out, guys, you can you can do the research very quickly to understand what the financial impact will be. It's just a question of whether or not you're going to take the time to do that. So I highly recommend that you um, you, you begin to understand the VAT impact by doing that that analysis. And if you don't know how, we can certainly help you. Okay, um, one last topic before we get to questions and answers. Um, uh, Guten Morgen, Wolfgang. Yes, hello. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm lovely to have you with us. Uh, you know, it, it, wouldn't be, um, it wouldn't be a fun conversation about Brexit without asking the Germans what they think of the English uh, issue going on, but we'll, we'll leave that for a time over beers, you and I. Uh, one of the more fascinating, in my opinion, one of the more fascinating areas of, of tax when we talk about trade is transfer pricing because of its complexity, because of its ubiquitous nature around the world and, and the opportunity for mistakes to be made that can be incredibly expensive to a company. When you're in the customs world, as many of the people on this call are today, we tend to not consider transfer pricing and its effect on our business until an audit uh, where customs is, is, is very um, there's very much a lot of in-depth work on trying to understand transfer pricing for companies. So it's a extremely important but often overlooked area of global trade. And I really want to thank you as the leader of this particular service line for coming on today and talking to our, our attendees. Yes, uh, thank you very much, Pete. Um, as you uh, mentioned before, um, my office, my crow uh, member firm office is located in Stuttgart in the uh, automotive 
belt uh, in the southern part of Stuttgart. And as you, you're absolutely right, oppressing the transfer, tax transfer pricing world uh, and the universe of transfer pricing into these 10 minutes uh, of our webinar, it's quite a challenge. Um, and um, yeah, to, today we have uh, evening, it's almost six o'clock. My colleagues are not on beer, they are on carnival because here in the southern part of Germany we have a, a very high carnival season. So um, transfer pricing, guys, the tax uh, audit at uh, the end of the day, um, and it's the same uh, in this webinar. I'm the bad guy waiting at the end of the road <laughs> for you. Um, whatever the size of your business is, we heard in this uh, uh, webinar that you should be prepared. Uh, you should prepare your supply chain, your workforce, your VAT, customs, and please do not forget the transfer pricing aspect. I learned in these uh, days uh, while preparing this webinar a new verb, uh, Brexiting. I found a good explanation in, the, in an online dictionary uh, that means uh, Brexiting means telling everyone at the party that you are leaving but actually staying. This translated into the uh, transfer pricing language could mean that you are still at the party but your car you want to drive home is already gone. That is uh, uh, the, the Brexit disruption um, in the supply chain caused by the Brexit often leads to uh, a total reorganization of the function in the multinational uh, enterprise groups. Uh, the rules applicable to um, International transfer pricing are defined in, and I think that's similar in, uh, in your uh, customers' world. Uh, it's defined in the OECD transfer pricing guideline. The last version is uh, from 2017, for which we use the term uh, business restructuring, the reorganization of the functions in the and the entities. And as business restructuring are typically accompanied by reallocation of profit potential among the members of a multinational enterprise group, the OECD transfer pricing guidelines require, therefore, con uh, consideration of whether such relocation of profit potential uh, are consistent with the arm's length principle. And I think that's, I think that's similar uh, in the transfer pricing um, customs world. The transfer of distribution and portfolio management activities from the UK to, uh, to a European company could have a number of significant tax consequences. Uh, the Brex restructurings um, means that the business should consider the tax implication of relocation operation and employees. Care needs to be taken to avoid trigger, triggering tax charges on capital gains or intangible disposals and consideration should be given to post-restructuring trans transfer pricing models. And also advice should also be taken in relation to the tax law of the EU a jurisdiction to which operation and employees are being transferred to. As uh, my colleague Renzel uh, and friend from uh, Netherlands already mentioned, uh, in the VAT world we have uh, different uh, 
percentage of the tax burden in the different EU countries. Uh, in the transfer pricing world, um, although we are all on the OECD uh, guidelines, we have um, different specific tax laws in, in the most of the Euro European countries. And that uh, brings me uh, to the next point that um, the preparation um, for the Brexit, when you, you uh, think about restructuring uh, your, your, your business in, in EU from Brexit to uh, other EU countries, um, you have to, you, you, you should uh, take a, a similar approach as Will mentioned. You take a whiteboard and uh, write on this uh, whiteboard um, all these transfer pricing related uh, details. As business restructuring are typically accompanied by reallocation of profit um, potential among the members of a multinational enterprise group. Um, as I mentioned, the OECD guidelines require consideration uh, of whether such reallocation uh, are within the arm's length uh, range. And uh, please allow me um, to, uh, to mention that it is worth taking a, a brief look at the two most important aspects, as you see on my slide. Uh, in uh, to be considered in the area of transfer pricing. Most relevant is whether the transfer of profit potential between associated enterprise will require a compensation to the restructured group entity for the transfer of function, risk, or asset to another non-UK entity. And um, for sure, the risk lies in, in, in UK and here we are all in contact with our Crow colleagues in London, and they are all well prepared to help you out if some of these problems uh, will, will come up. The, and in addition to that, we learned in the past years uh, due to this uh, BEPS process, you heard this space erosion and business um, profit shifting um, thing um, from um, which brought up thousands of uh, slides of papers and uh, we have to learn that the OECD's master and local file form format already require that the text paper describe any important business restructuring transaction during the, re the year. In brief, in preparation of the transfer, we highly recommended that uh, you should carefully listing uh, a carefully uh, listing be prepared of what will be transfers uh, between the associated enterprise. This supports the claim that the business restructuring takes place at arm's length. Let's. Um, I can give you uh, some of the example, uh, some examples. The, for example, a transfer of inventory will be required to consider any risk related to the market value. The transfer of intangible uh, will require valuation. Um, here you can think about customer contacts, relationship lists, supplier contacts, marketing intangible, technology know-how, trading intangible, and other rights such as 
authorizations. This will potentially give rise to taxable, taxable gains income based on the difference between the market value of the assets, uh, the IPs, and their cost for tax purposes. If a UK company moves to become tax resident in another uh, territory, similar gains profits can arise and uh, Her Majesty's revenue uh, customs prior uh, approval is is require, required. If that happened, uh, we, you can wait for a tax audit uh, in UK and my colleague Paul Fay and Lawrence Field from uh, Crow London, uh, they um, explained to me yesterday that uh, could uh, have a deep impact because uh, when IP or other uh, inventory moves to another country, uh, all the hidden reserves uh, uh, will now come onto the surface and uh, will be taxed in the UK. And in our experience, uh, that uh, tax authorities are also key, uh, keen, and that is uh, the next point, to determine whether the intercompany trans transaction post restructuring are conducted at arm's length margin with respect to its remaining post restructuring activities. Uh, due to the transfer of function risk asset multinational uh, enterprise group will need to design, implement and uh, document their new transfer pricing policy for the post restructuring intercompany transaction between the remaining UK group entity and the new EU-based group. And for sure we are able to, to help uh, our clients uh, uh, to do this right. Um, there's an additional risk of potentially double taxation because less profit in the UK due to this uh, uh, shifting of functions or uh, business restructuring and more profits being allocated to the EU-based or over other overseas entities may lead to tax, tax disputes between the HMRC and the non-UK tax authorities. So. Uh, in a f this uh, few words, you see the, these are the two, uh, out of my perspective, perspective, two most relevant uh, uh, problems that could uh, that will arise to us and um, coming from these disrupted, uh, disruptive Brexit effects on transfer pricing. So thank far, thank you so much. Yes, th thank you so much. Um, I would like to point out, this is the part where, where the teacher in me comes out. I gave very strict instructions to everyone else to just give me one slide. And my colleagues in the Netherlands and in Germany did, whereas my, you know, my dear friend in, in Michigan was unable to follow that very simple direction. So I want to thank, um, I want to thank Rendell and I want to thank Wolfgang for doing all of that in one slide with a tremendous amount of information. I guess it just shows the efficiency of our foreign partners uh, beyond the ones in the U.S. So we are coming close, very close to the end here. And what I, what I wanted to bring up before this all concluded was very little of, of what was discussed today, particularly in VAT and in transfer pricing, is ever brought up in the context of a trade discussion. I, I would say the same thing is done with regards to duty 
when we talk about tax. Over and over again, when I have a meeting with, with someone uh, and we go over, go over customs VAT, the customs duty, excuse me, they just consider it something that they have to pay, that it was the price of doing business. And as many of us who are on today learned with the Chinese crisis that we've been going through, the ongoing crisis, there are ways to mitigate that cost. Now, there are also ways to mitigate and manage VAT, and there are also ways to, to deal with transfer pricing in a way that will be more advantageous to the business in the end. So what I suggest to all of you on this call, and I, I, I cannot be more sincere in this, I want you all, if you are responsible for trade compliance and logistics and or logistics for your company, I want you to find out who the person is that makes decisions about that. Find out the person who makes decisions about transfer pricing. And you need to all get together in the same room or on a conference call and take the time to collaborate about how this is going to affect your business. And from a custom standpoint, I probably have the easiest job of all here to talk to you about. The United Kingdom is one of a very small collection of countries that if you ask for the import activity data of your company, revenue will send it to you. So here in the U.S., of course, we have iTrack and ACE. In Great Britain, there is a similar process for downloading years of your import activity. I believe it's only one year, but still. You have the ability to find out pretty quickly what the extent of your importing activity is into Great Britain. You should have the same ability to find out what exports as well. So there's no excuse for not knowing what the financial impact would be. And that's really what I wanted to punctuate today with. No more excuses, guys. No more using hope as a strategy. There is a clearly defined date when we're going to have to take action. You should have plans A, B, and C ready, and they should all include these very four important parts of your supply chain. That transfer pricing, supply chain engineering, and customs. Please reach out if you need help. If you want a very quick analysis of this, we do that. It's uh, surprisingly affordable and pretty quick. But I think more importantly, you need to take the reins. As Will pointed out, no one knows your business better than you do. To sit down with these people involved in these areas and have a conversation. And if you want, we'll be happy to be on that call too. I can't thank you enough, all of you, for coming and joining me today. Um, Wolfgang, Rundle, and uh, of course, Big Willie Nibs, for making time to join me today. Uh, Matthew, as always, thank you for your production and the time and the effort and the patience that you have with us. And uh, to everybody on Trade School, I will be at Mardi Gras for the next few days, so probably not a good idea to reach out to me uh, maybe until, I don't know, Wednesday next week. But um, I hope those of you who are in Louisiana, those of you who are celebrating Carnival around the world, have a safe and wonderful Mardi Gras, wonderful Carnival, and thank you all again for attending Trade School. With that, I'll hand it back over to Matthew. And Pete, thank you again for all that you do to take us through these complex topics in an entertaining way. I know our attendees appreciate that. To all of our attendees, we do thank you for your time and participation today. You gave us the most precious commodity you have, an hour of your time. We hope that it was time well invested with us. We look forward to having you join us on a future broadcast. Have a great day.